0: That's a beautiful, beautiful truth. Uh, Thank you for that music to go along with it. We're going to go ahead and dismiss the children at this time. Four years old to fourth grade. If you'll head on out the back, they'll be headed over to the lunchroom. While they're headed out, if you'll take your Bibles and turn back to that passage of Scripture that we've been in for a couple weeks now. John chapter 11. Easy to in the in the preaching schedule that we keep here at Calvary uh, to somewhat get disconnected with uh, the message from week to week or every two weeks, and so just want to kind of remind you uh, about John chapter 11 where we're at and uh, the truth of it. John chapter 11 starts out with suffering. Mary and Martha are suffering as their brother, their beloved brother, is dying. And so they send off for Jesus to come and Jesus does not come. In fact, he tarries. Instead of going, he waits. And he says that this is for the glory of God and he says that it's for the love of this family. And that's shocking to us because typically, love is expressed through alleviating pain. Not allowing it. And so as we As we read through that, we saw how God's glory is on display in this passage against the backdrop of suffering, against the backdrop of man's hatred, showing God's final purposes and what he's doing. And it will be on display in his time and in his way. So Jesus tells his disciples, we looked at this two weeks ago, Jesus tells his disciples that Lazarus is dead and that he was glad for it. Of course, the sentence doesn't end there. He's glad for it because it would give them a chance to see and understand who he really is. God's way and God's time. And they, of course the disciples questioned, They questioned this decision to go back to Bethany because they had just almost been killed in Jerusalem. And to go back to Bethany was to go back two days journey closer to those people that hated him. And so Jesus, we looked at last time, gives wonderful teaching about confident living that comes through faith in God's will and in God's timing. Really, we would say this morning, the safest place to be is in God's will. In fact, fear in a believer's life only comes when we have perceived danger. Because the truth of it is, there is no danger for the believer walking according to God's will. Confidence in living comes from understanding that God has ordained life and that God has a perfect and righteous plan for our lives. I mean, the Bible tells us that we cannot, through anxiety or worry, add one hour to our life. Now, apparently you can add one hour to sunlight by moving your clock, but... No man can add a, a day, a, an hour to his life through worry and anxiety. And so we're called to trust God's will to, to walk in God's righteous way. And so while a believer is walking in God's righteous way, there's, there's nothing to fear. And in, in fact, we'd say there's an invincibility about the believer who recognizes God's will and is walking according to Him. So Jesus takes His disciples and they go right back. Toward those who would do him harm. And in fact, the most dangerous thing that would be to walk away from Christ. To stay away from walking in God's will. Why? Because Christ is the life. Christ is life. And so today we're going to continue in this chapter. And uh, to set the direction, I'd just like to ask you a couple of questions this morning. How do you cope with loss? How do you cope with loss, right? And the buzzwords now are coping mechanisms. What coping mechanisms do you have? How do you cope with discouragement, frustration, depression? The world has many ways of, of coping with that. None of us are beyond discouragement, none of us are beyond loss or frustration, or even we would say depression. How do you cope? The second question is this. Are you enjoying life? Are you enjoying life? I know that's kind of an open-ended question. But are you enjoying life? I mean, yesterday was a beautiful day, right? I mean, it was a beautiful day in the sense that uh, we were outside. The kids were playing outside, which is a healthy thing, right? And they're enjoying the outdoors. They're playing well together. They're not fighting. I had a fire going. I was trying to burn all this Yard debris, and that's just, you know, fire is fun, and I have the burn marks to prove it, and uh, we're cleaning the house, the doors are open, and it just, you know, it. But, but you know that doesn't last, right? Those, those days are, are fun, and, and, and we remember them, and at the same time, that's really not what brings enjoyment to life. Enjoyment to the day, maybe, but are you enjoying life? What is it that you enjoy most about life? And what would happen if you lost that? These are, these are, are questions of, of practical living that I want to come back to at the end of a very theological chapter. Because if you have right theology, it will always work itself out into right living. Wrong theology, however... Well, like we read this morning in 1 Corinthians, we'll be, of all men, most miserable. And so I pray that you'll give your heart and mind. Let's pick up our reading this morning, then, in John chapter 11 and verse 17. John chapter 11 and verse 17. We're going to take an aggressive approach to the chapter and try to get through a lot. uh, And we'll just, since we have an extra hour of daylight, we'll just keep going. All right. Just kidding. All right. Verse 17. Then when Jesus came, that is, he and his disciples are coming back to Bethany, the, the town of Bethany, where Mary Martha and Lazarus live. Then when Jesus came, he found uh, that he had lay- and then when Jesus came, he found that he had lain in the grave four days already. Now Bethany was nigh into Jerusalem, about 15 furlongs off. We would say that's about two miles. And many of the Jews came to Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary sat still in the house. Then Martha said unto Jesus, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. Jesus said unto her, thy brother shall rise again. We'll just leave off for a moment in our reading there. What is the context here? Well, Jesus has waited two days. They came and said, Lazarus is sick. And Jesus waited two more days to make the two-day trip back to Bethany. And and, and the significance of that is found, I think, in why maybe Jesus waited four days. Back in Jewish tradition and in that day, they thought that the spirit hovered over the body... Uh, for a few days' wait, wanting to come back into the body. Uh, But really, after the third day, there was really no chance. And, uh, of course, we would recognize this with the the scientific advancements of those days. Uh, Whether someone was in a coma, they could be confused as dead, but then come back. And so uh, that, that idea, people could have explained away what's about to happen here with that idea, oh, he wasn't really dead, or his spirit came back to him, Uh, naturally and so jesus waits those four days after four days though enough decomposition of the body had taken place that it was pretty certain that they weren't coming back and it really in that day since they without refrigeration and those things uh, the body started to decompose pretty quickly and of course you see that later on in martha's uh, statement that hey don't go in there Uh, by now he stinks and you know what that means it just means that he stinks, right? And those of you who have been involved in, in those things understand uh, Brad and I had an opportunity when we when I first moved back to Myrtle Beach to be a part of uh, the coroner's office, and we would go and pick up uh, for the coroner, and um, like we've said before, we never mistook the, the right person to pick up. We never picked up a live person. We always got the right one. And uh, Brad has more stories, or at least can tell them in a better way than I can, but uh, there was a time he came and picked up someone who had been dead for many days. And uh, the precautions and the things they were taking to overcome the stench. Uh, and, and, well, I'll just let Brad tell you that story. All right. <laughs> the body is dead. Jesus waits four days and is, is coming back, uh, is coming to see them. The place is about two miles east of Jerusalem. And uh, the passage talks about many coming to mourn with Mary and Martha. It suggests two things. First of all, that they would come probably from Jerusalem, as many people would have gone down the road to be with this family. And also uh, that this, this family probably was a prominent family. Uh, it was custom, even the poorest people uh, would have people come and mourn. It was just part of their custom that when you, when you buried a loved one, you mourned. And so people would, there would be professional mourners that would come out and mourn with the family. And so with the with the statement here that many Jews were there, uh, we see that probably many had come from Jerusalem and this family probably had the means or at least had a name in the community that many would come out and do that with them. Interestingly enough, funerals in those days were different than ours. Uh, we were very sanitized when it comes to death. Uh, when someone dies, they are put away from our sight. They are put in a place that keeps them from decomposing. They're, they're embalmed. They're... Uh, they could put nice clothes on, or the horizontal tailor works on them and, and uh, puts makeup on them. And, and, and then we have a viewing and they look right. I mean, they, they don't always look the same, but you know, at least they look presentable when we go to an open casket funeral. That is not how they did it then. right? They would bury immediately. And for obvious reasons, Jerusalem is a hot climate and decomposition would, would, would take place right away. But then they would mourn with the family for a week, and really up to 30 days was the funeral idea here. And so being on the fourth day, there would still be many mourners there uh, taking part in this process. What I want us to see this morning, though, is the struggle of unbelief. And and I, I would just encourage you as we go through these verses that you would identify in your own heart how you have this same struggle. You know, it's one thing to read this story recognizing the end of it. It's another thing for Mary and Martha to be in it, not knowing what's about to come. But I think we'd be wise as Christians to read this with an understanding that we ourselves in many ways struggle with the same type of unbelief. Look at the struggle of unbelief here. Verse 20, Martha comes to Jesus and says, Lord, if if thou had been here, my brother had not died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, he'll give it thee. And Jesus saith unto her, thy brother shall rise. So, so Mary saith to him, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection at the last day. I want to recognize here that unbelief is often exposed in times of great fear, great frustration, discouragement, depression, and loss. Unbelief is really exposed exposed in our lives through difficult times i mean it's easy to walk around on a day like yesterday and sing god's praises it's a hard thing to wake up an hour early and sing those same praises right uh and it's definitely hard when we are losing someone that we love and oftentimes it's those low times that our unbelief really comes to the surface i can't Totally be sure of Martha's attitude here, but listen to her words. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Surely she had seen and heard how everyone that came to Jesus for healing was healed. And we read that in Scripture, that the crowds would come and press on him, and they would bring all the sick and healing, and it would say, Jesus healed every one of them. We don't have any account in Scripture where somebody comes to Jesus to be healed that is turned away. And as Jesus spent a lot of time with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, I'm sure these things are going through her mind. Jesus is the healer. We need him here. We need him here. He can fix the problem. And so she states, Lord, if you had been here, we know you would have healed him. Now, I don't think this is a passive, aggressive way of making Jesus feel bad. You know, like um, a statement followed by a long, intrusive stare from your wife. Uh, So Aaron broke his arm about a week and a half ago. And Bethany goes, well, I was here at home keeping the girls safe. Where were you? (laughs) I don't think that's what Martha's doing to Jesus here, obviously. But it is interesting how disconnected Martha's personal experience is from what she knows to be true about Jesus, right? I've heard these things. I've seen you do these miracles, and if you would have been here. Not, oh, now that you're here, it's, oh, we miss the opportunity. We miss the opportunity. By the way, we do this all the time. We know of the miracles of Jesus. We know of the personal involvement that Jesus had with the people in the Bible. And we may even give testimonies on Wednesday nights about good things that happened. But what about when my deep need comes and my struggle and that time of loss comes that is stealing the enjoyment of life? And I may know that God did amazing things in the Bible, but this is 2021. And does God even know? And if he knows, does he really even care? Now, I doubt those words come to mind. But the fact that we find ourselves in great discouragement and discouragement over a long period of time without hope is called depression. And those things in our life that we we may go to church, we may sing about the power of God, and then we go home and live in defeat and discouragement. We separate the, the miracles of Jesus from the living Christ. This was something that happened. I mean, how many of you have ever seen the waters parted? And, and we kind of hold these things about Jesus from the Bible in the Bible time. Lord, if you had been here, but, you know, I'm not living in the Bible time right now. Have you ever struggled with that? And I'd say, well, no, I've never, you know, said that God couldn't work a miracle. So then why are you living in discouragement? And why are you living in depression? And why are you living in that great loss where where the enjoyment of life that God has given through Christ just seems to be missing? Should not Christians be of all men most happy and joyful? Shouldn't Christians have such a winsome attitude about life that others around us would just be drawn to that? Have you ever met a sour Christian? Man, I, my grandmother on my mom's side went through some very deep struggles, very difficult times with her husband and family and and I, I didn't know what it was like to have a kind and sweet grandmother. My dad's mom, I didn't really know her. My mom's mom, every time you talked to her, she was dying. And, and, and she wanted to remind us of how bad our parents were and why we were late and, and why couldn't we get stuff done. Now, I want to be careful if she was kind to us and generous to us. And at the same time, uh, if you, we'd come home from college and say, Grandma, how are you? Oh. <clears throat> I'm dying. Grandma, you've been saying that since you were 75. You're 94 now. (laughs) She did. She lived to 94. You see, there's a disconnect that we make between what we read in Scripture and understand in Scripture, and then what happens when we have loss and struggle. Look at the next statement. It sounds good, but what does it even mean? John eleven twenty two. But I know that even now, whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. This, is, this sounds like, like Martha saying, Hey, we know that if you ask God to bring him out of the grave, he'll bring him out of the grave. But that is not what she means. And we'll see that later on in the passage. She's, Jesus goes to the tomb and tells him to roll the doorway. She goes, What are you doing? Stop! He's really, really dead. It's gone. It's, it's, it's a bygone thing. I think what she's saying here is probably something like, I know that, that you will be able to make something good come out of this tragedy, and I, I'm not sure what, but I know this is the right thing to say. Have you ever caught yourself saying the right thing but not really believing it? Yeah, <clears throat> yeah if you even know the, the verse, Romans eight twenty eight, you know exactly what I'm saying. And God causes all things to work together for good. Mm-hmm. Jesus responds in verse 23 and says to her, thy brother shall rise again. Martha has a head knowledge, but that head knowledge fails to be true belief. It falls short. Verse 24, Martha said, I know, I know that he shall rise again in the resurrection of the last day. We've been, I bet this is something that had been repeated ever since the mourner showed up. Ever since Lazarus died. Yes, I know, I know, I know these things. You, you know what I'm talking about. You've been in a difficult time of loss, right? Or, or a time of, of great frustration, of disappointment. And, and some that person comes along and quotes Romans eight twenty eight to you. I know. Maybe now's not the right time to say it, okay? I know all things work together for good. I don't, have it. I don't know why or how. And I, I know I'm supposed to say it, but... I really don't see it. Now, I, I'm listen, I'm painting Martha in a way that I can't tell you if this is accurate, but I know it's accurate about Mark Rowland. Okay. And I think we can all agree that in the middle of trials of life, when our faith is tested, oftentimes unbelief is brought to the surface. Loss and discouragement, frustration, depression... Promises of God seem impersonal. They seem distant, cold when quoted by somebody who's not experiencing what I'm experiencing. Unbelief. Unbelief then often expresses itself in grief. Look at the next verse, verse 28, or come down to verse 28. And when she said so, she went her way and called Mary, her sister, secretly, saying, The master is come and calleth for thee. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and and came unto him. Now Jesus was not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. The Jews uh, then which were with her in the house and comforted her when they saw Mary, that she rose up hastily and went out followed her, saying, She goeth unto the grave to weep there. Then when Mary was come uh, where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying unto him, Lord, if thou hadst been here, my brother had not died. When Jesus saw, therefore saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, which came with her, he groaned in his spirit and was troubled. Unbelief often is expressed in hopeless grief. Mary shows us a little bit more of of the raw emotion. This would make sense based on the personality differences between Martha and Mary, Martha was the leader, she was the caretaker, she was the strong one, she was the one that prepared the food and and got it ready, and remember, she's the one that told Jesus, hey, can you tell Mary to quit sitting there and get up and help me? And Jesus said, no, Mary's made the better choice. Mary was the worshiper, Martha was the manager, the logical one. And so here, In this chapter, by the way, in the next chapter, we're going to see how Mary's worship and emotion are poured out on Jesus. Martha, on the other hand, is different. So we see these these emotions from Mary. It's it's a sad sight, actually, if you could, in your mind, picture what's happening here. Martha goes back to Mary, and probably so that Mary could have a personal time with Jesus, tells her secretly, The Master's here, would like to see you. Mary gets up and runs to him. The mourners see her leaving and say, oh, she she must be going to the grave. Let's go with her. Jesus approaches the Lord and does what? She says the same thing Martha said, almost as if this is a conversation. Have you ever talked to people and recognized, uh, oh, you must have been with them. You said the same thing, right? So, So Mary runs out, and I'm sure this had been a topic of conversation maybe even before Lazarus had died. Maybe the conversation went like this. Lazarus, let us go get Jesus. He can help you. And Lazarus like, no, don't bother the master. Don't take him away from his teaching. I'll be okay. And and then he dies. And so the the sisters may have just been beating themselves up. Why did we not go to Jesus sooner? Why didn't we get him to come? He could have healed. And so Mary runs out there and falls at his feet weeping. These are adults. These These are believers in Christ. Overcome with grief. Mary's weeping seems to have a hopelessness to it. What she's saying, I mean, it seems maybe somewhat accusatory. I don't know if that's the way. If you had had been here, if you had been here. By the way, I hope that as believers, when we come to a point of loss, I don't know if there is a better opportunity for our light to shine. In times of loss, there has to be an understanding of this passage. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you have experienced great loss, you need to spend time in this chapter. You need to spend time understanding who Jesus Christ is. Some of you have buried children some of your buried brothers and sisters, parents, spouses, close friends. And you know there is absolutely a strong pull of grief that would pull you into a darkness of hopelessness. There's Mary comes and is just on her face before God weeping in grief. Not only that, but the crowd as well. Look at their unbelief. John 11, 31, the Jews that were with her in the house to comfort her when they saw Mary, they, they rose up and went out with her. right? And, and then Jesus, in verse 33, when he saw her weeping, and the Jews also weeping, and I, by the way, this says the idea of wailing. He groaned in his spirit and was troubled. Jump down to verse 37. Some of these Jews said this, could not this man which opened the eyes of the blind have caused this have had caused that even this man should not have died? Look at the unbelief. By the way, unbelief is hopeless. Or you could go the backwards. If you are hopeless about a situation, it is because of unbelief. By the way, they said this about Jesus all the time, didn't they? They'll actually say the same thing about him on the cross. He healed others. He saved others. Why can't he save himself? This Jesus healed other people. Why can't he heal the person he loved? There's a grief to that. Even the crowd is disappointed in Jesus. Now it's interesting. We have kind of a window here in this chapter into Jesus' humanity. Here in a second we're going to see Jesus' deity in a powerful way. But we, we have a view into Jesus' humanity. Look at verse 33. Verse 33 says that Jesus groaned in his spirit and was troubled. This word groaned here in the Greek language is a very picturesque thing. And it's not typically tied with grief. It's actually tied with stopping an action or, or confronting an action. It actually has to do with the sound that a horse makes. And here when Jesus views these things, there is an emotional response in Jesus. Then if you look at verse 35, every child's favorite memory verse, right? Jesus wept. Jesus wept. This is a different word than the words used for, for Mary and Martha in the crowd. Jesus wept. And I don't know about you, but... I think it would have been a shocking thing for me to see Jesus crying. Jesus had been through extreme temptation in the wilderness, 40 days without food. Do you think he was emotional at that time? I mean, come on, I missed like two meals and I'm emotional. Jesus had been through hateful mistreatment by many hard-headed disciples, not learning their lesson, slippery and deceitful questioning by Pharisees, religious leaders who claimed to know His Father but wanted to kill Him. Jesus has been through great, great suffering, great frustration, great hardship. Usually when you meet a person like this, they don't cry. You know somebody in your past that just you don't ever remember crying? So when I think of my father, my father was not a crier. My mom, on the other hand, cried all the time. She'd look at me and Start crying. <laughs> my dad, I, 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 as I remember, I'm sure that this isn't accurate, but I, I only remember my father crying twice. One of them was when uh, it was he and I in the laundry room. The laundry room was a place where discipline took place. and uh, I think that it must have been a frustrating time for him as I was growing in my understanding of right and wrong and was continuing to choose wrong. And I had exasperated him through rebellion and hard-heartedness. And my dad looked at me and was crying and said, You didn't come with instructions. And I would have preferred my dad to beat me up one side and down the, down the rest because seeing my father cry was the worst thing. That was the worst thing I had seen that I had caused my father, who really never cried, to cry. The other time that I saw my father cry was when... One of my family members had fallen into deep moral sin. And so when my dad cried, it didn't matter what it was about. I was heartbroken. Can you imagine seeing Jesus cry? Weep. What would make Jesus cry? It wasn't the death of Lazarus, right? It wasn't hopelessness. It wasn't the grave. It wasn't depression or discouragement. He knew what he was about to do. It wasn't death. It wasn't... Loss. It wasn't hopelessness. And and really, we don't know exactly what's going on, but I think we can gain insight from other verses of Scripture. First, the reason why I believe Jesus cried is because Jesus felt strong emotion on behalf of those he loves. Hebrews 4.15 tells us, About Jesus Christ as our high priest. A high priest is somebody who goes on behalf of another to someone else. A mediator. And Jesus is called the perfect high priest who goes between man and God. And what does it tell us about our high priest? In Hebrews 4.15 it says, For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities. In the Greek language, a double negative is used to intensify the language. And so in English, we can read it this way. We absolutely have a high priest who is absolutely touched with the feelings of our weaknesses. This is Jesus. In his humanity, he takes on that emotional partnership with us. In those times, when you are grieving, when you have suffered loss, when you are discouraged, when you are depressed, Jesus knows the feeling. He enters into that. And I think this is part of a a window into how Jesus takes on our suffering and takes on our emotions in such a way that, that he understands. Because he, it says that because of this, he is a great high priest. It says that he was in all points tempted like as we are. In all points, to the extreme, Jesus enters into our sorrow with us. Not in the same way that our unbelief would lead us. Was Jesus ever discouraged? Was he ever depressed? Frustrated? I don't know that I can answer that. But I do know that he enters into our pain and into our struggle so much that he is called a merciful high priest one that represents us in such a way that says he is touched with our with the feelings of our infirmities I love the song does jesus care I just want to read it to you because I think it helps us enter into this does jesus care when my heart is pained too deeply for mirth or song as the burdens press and the cares distress and the way grows weary and long does Jesus care when I've tried and failed to resist some temptation strong? When for my deep grief I find no relief, though my tears flow all the night long? Does Jesus care when I've said goodbye to the dearest on earth to me? My sad heart aches till it nearly breaks. Is it aught to him? Does he see? Of course, the chorus is that wonderful refrain, Oh, yes, he cares. I know he cares. His heart is touched with my grief. When the days are weary and the long nights dreary, I know my Savior cares. Why did Jesus weep at the grave of Lazarus? I think part of it is because he loved Mary and Martha and entered into their struggle. I think there's another reason why, and I think it's found in Luke chapter 19. Luke 19, Jesus is coming to Jerusalem. He's just been praised as the Messiah, he's riding into Jerusalem on the back of a, of a donkey, right? And they're throwing his, their coats down, and they're, they're putting palm branches down, and they're saying, Hosanna, blessed is he that comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus rides through all that praise, and he gets up to that point where he overlooks Jerusalem, and he weeps. Seems odd, doesn't it? That at a time of great exaltation, Jesus would weep? And Why? The truth is that people were caught up in the moment. They were caught up in whatever was happening. They didn't believe anything. These same people screaming Hosanna are going to scream something else by the end of the week. What is it? Crucify him. It says that when he came near, he beheld the city and wept over it. Saying, if thou hadst known, even thou, at least in this day, the things which belong unto thy peace... But now they are hid from thine eyes. For the day shall come upon thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee, and compass thee round about, and keep thee on every side, and shall lay thee even with the ground, and thy children within thee. And they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another. Jesus looks over Jerusalem after all this praise, and he looks over Jerusalem and he sees that what is coming is the judgment of God. Why? The last phrase of verse 44 says, Because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Jesus said, Your deliverer is here. Your deliverer is coming to town. Your deliverer is coming to save you. But through unbelief you will reject it. And Jesus weeps over unbelief. He weeps over the city. He says in another passage that, If you would, I would just gather you like chickens under the wings of a mother. I would gather you and protect you. But you won't have it. In fact, you'll run headlong into the fire. There's another time we see Jesus weeping, and that's in Hebrews 5, 7. And it says this, that who in the days of his flesh, that is Jesus, when he had offered up prayers and supplication with strong crying and tears unto him that was able to save him from death and was heard in that he feared. I think when Jesus goes to God on behalf of us he weeps he weeps or i would say he wept we're going to be in john chapter 17 soon and this is god's this is jesus high priestly prayer where he is praying that god would keep us and that god would strengthen us And that God would not take us out of the world, but that he would strengthen us to go through the persecution that we're about to face. And he's praying for us. And I imagine that if you take Hebrews 5, 7 literally, that while Jesus is praying to the Father on your behalf, he is weeping over you because he loves you. So as we get to Hebrews 17, that'll be in the future. Don't forget this, okay? All right. Each of these, though, think about it. Each of these has to do with the destructive nature of sin and unbelief. The pain that we suffer in this life are a result of sin. A result of Adam and Eve's sin. A result of of America's sin. A result of our own sin. A result of our parents' sin. We struggle. We struggle with grief and frustration and loss. And Jesus enters into that. But it has come through sin and unbelief. When Jesus weeps over those who reject him, it is because of unbelief. When Jesus prays for us, he weeps because he knows the struggle that comes through unbelief. And so as Jesus stands at the grave, he enters into the sorrow of those that he loves. By the way, we know that, that Mary and Martha are not believing in an immediate resurrection. Right? Look at Verse 39. Jesus said, take away the stone, and, and Martha, the sister of him that was dead, said unto him, Lord, by this time he stinketh; for he had been dead four days. He's not coming back. Don't remove the stone. So think about this. We see that unbelief surfaces in hard times and that, that there's, a, there's a sorrow that comes from unbelief that will drown us in grief. But but there's somebody at this gravesite that's different. Jesus is there, right? Look at uh, verse 25. We're going to go back up a little bit. Verse 25. When Martha said, "I know, I know that Lazarus will be raised in the last day," Jesus said unto her, one of the I am statements. The, Jesus makes seven of these statements that are so. Uh, So amazing as we understand and, And as we come to understand them We understand who Jesus really is And Jesus says this I am the resurrection and the life He that believeth in me Though he were dead Yet shall he live And whosoever liveth and believeth in me Shall never die To Mary and Martha What is the reality of Jesus The son of God God himself Jesus says, look, I am resurrection. It's not that the resurrection is an event. It's the fact that I, Jesus, am the resurrection. The resurrection of Old Testament saints in the future, that's me, but I'm here. This is a present reality. I am the resurrection, and I am life. The faith and hope of all those who have gone before, he says, I am the hope. I am the faith, I am the resurrection. Not just the resurrector, I am the resurrection. What does that mean for those of you who have Christ living within you? Within you, you have the power of resurrection. That doesn't mean that you're going to go and tell yourself when to jump out of a grave. But I tell you what, it means you will never die. Jesus is resurrection. He is life. I believe that Jesus is teaching that all true hope and all true faith is not in an event. It is in a person. By the way, that the ramifications of that understanding are amazing. Some people base the fact that I know I'm saved. How do you know I'm saved? Because there was this time in my past when I did this. That's not what Jesus is talking about when he says I am life. How do you know you're saved today? How would you know that if you did die today that you wouldn't die, but you would live forever with him? Well, you see, my mom told me when I was five. And I don't want to disparage the faith of a five-year-old. Jesus commends it and says, you've got to come as a child. But I'll tell you this, if your hope is in something that you did in the past, you've missed the point of this passage where Jesus says, I am life. How do you know today that you, if you die, would go to heaven? Because Jesus lives within me, and he is the resurrection, and he is life. And he has said that no man can take him away from me. No man can pluck me out of the Father's hand. I am his. He's the good shepherd. He knows his sheep, and he'll never suffer his sheep to be lost. And in this passage, he says this, Whosoever liveth, that's us, and believeth, hopefully that's you, will never die. Why? Because he is life. Do you have life? By the way, why do you think we read out of Ephesians chapter 2 which says you hath he quickened or made alive who were what? Dead in trespasses and sins. Jesus lives within the believer that's taught all through the New Testament and he is life. And that's why if I die today I wouldn't die today. That's why if my body perishes, I am in the presence of him. Because he lives in me and you cannot snuff out that life. Though the darkness would try to comprehend or overcome, the darkness cannot overcome the light of life. I am resurrection power embodied. I am life. To Lazarus, To Mary and Martha, he's saying, look, that's me. I'm the person to Lazarus. Jesus is the power that conquers death and hell. I I don't think any of you have ever, you know, there's a fascination with zombies, okay? Don't let that confuse you with what's happening here. I mean, every picture I ever colored of Lazarus coming out of the grave, he was wrapped up like a mummy, right? And he is wrapped up. When he comes out, it says, Take that off and loose him. But I tell you, when he came out of the grave, I doubt he was still sick. Right? Jesus' power has a... If it can overcome death and hell, it definitely can overcome sickness, right? And Jesus works this amazing... He he stands at the grave, and with a word, with a word, he unlocks that which no man has power to overcome. Right? He restores life to Lazarus. He gives him life. He creates life. He is the giver of life. He is the creator of life. And life is sacred because it comes from him and returns to him. Life is not something that is insignificant. To the crowd. I don't know. What picture yourself there? Well, he healed other people. Why did he come on time? And then to see Jesus heal this man, do you think it would have caused a work of belief in you? Yeah. But let me remind you of something that Jesus says, blessed are they who believe and yet have not seen. Do you have loved ones in the grave? Blessed are they that believe. We didn't see this. To us, whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. Jesus is teaching us something about life that I don't think we quite understand. Life is not a sum of days. Life is not a bunch of years put together in chronological order. There is something about life that we need to understand. Jesus is the giver of life. He's the sustainer of life. He's the possessor of life. This is why it's a crime to kill is not yours to take you can't give it this comes from God life comes from Christ he's the giver apart from Jesus there is only death eternal death this daily existence on earth will cease and my body will pass away some of you have remembered over the last few weeks that I've stood up here and said very clearly Mark Rowland will never die You can say it back to me if you're at my funeral and you look at my casket. Hey, did you remember saying this? I probably won't respond in the same way. So what does it mean? It means that there's something true about life that is much more than a sum of days and a number of years and a string of experiences put together in chronological order. There's something very sacred about life and the moment this body ceases to support what we call life, Mark Roland will no longer experience one millisecond of death. I will not experience my own death. I may be late to my funeral because I'm late to a number of things, but do you understand this? If Jesus lives within us, there's something about life that never touches death. Even though the body passes away The spirit is renewed day by day until that day when it is perfected, or it is already perfected, but stands with Christ. And we're going to take time to go over the theology of resurrection of the body. My body will stand before God too. It's going to take some time to marinate in the grave maybe, but it's going to stand before God. Job says in this body, by the way, Job's body, you don't want that one, right? He went through some tough things. That body, he said, will stand before God. I believe there is a resurrection of the body. The body passes away. Your spirit has been redeemed. Your body has not been redeemed yet. I'm reminded every time the barber cuts my hair. I'm like, man, why don't you clean up after these old guys that you're cutting hair for because there's gray hair all over the place? She's like, no, that's yours. That's yours. Do <laughs> you want me to color? No way. I worked hard for these, okay? The body's passing away. Okay? There's coming a day when that body will be redeemed and stand before God fit for eternity, eternal life. Now listen, the body of the unbelievers will also be resurrected and they will be fitted with a body appropriate for what's called eternal death. Apparently it's a body that cannot be consumed by fire but yet tortured by it. We need to, if you, listen, if you are struggling with loss in such a way that it's led you to discouragement, this discouragement over time has sunk you into depression, don't go out and, and, and use a pill. Find life. Don't go drink yourself into happiness. That's death. Find life. Let Christ be the one that overcomes loss and frustration and discouragement. Why? How can that happen? As you come to know Jesus Christ, He gives a hope beyond the grave. He gives a hope beyond loss. He gives purpose to life because He is life. And I'm not saying that it's wrong to be, be sad or wrong to be discouraged, but I'm telling you this, when believers live in continual hopelessness that comes from these things, we do a great disservice to life, to Christ, Jesus says, I am life. Are you living life? Remember at the beginning we asked you, what do you love most about life? And what would happen if it was taken away? Listen, if Jesus Christ is your life, it cannot be taken away. And he provides the the joy of life. And when there is loss, when you stand at the grave of somebody, you recognize God is the one who gave life. God is the one who takes life. And God is the one. And God is the one. And he is trustworthy. When I stood at the casket of my father, we looked at him and we're like, this is not him. This is a farce. This isn't truth. The truth is that life continues for my father and he stands before his maker in great joy. But I have a brother who's down syndrome and, and, and what, what, what about when he dies? Pretty sure if I asked him to come up here and give you a testimony of salvation... Not much would come out. And he'll probably stand at my casket. But if I stand at his casket, how am I going to answer the struggle of the question, where is he right now? You know what the truth is? This would go for any child, any infant, any person you know or don't know. When we stand in front of death, We need to recognize that Jesus Christ is life. Jesus Christ is love. And you absolutely can trust him. My brother Jonathan, we love him very much. But God is trustworthy with my brother. And I will leave my brother's soul in his hands. And any kind of questioning or answers that I may fabricate, don't take away the doubt. And you know what you do with doubt? You take it to Christ and say you are God and you are the resurrection and the life and he is yours what else can you do? what else would you want to do? have you ever been in a funeral where the pastor puts the person in heaven? they don't have that power have you ever been in a funeral where the guy's talking about how God has received his beloved Christian brother and everybody's like I'm at the funeral we knew that guy that man was profane this happened a couple years ago Bert and I were sitting in a funeral we're looking at each other going is this the guy listen there is great confidence for yourself and there's great hope for others Jesus is life he also teaches us something about death right yes the body will die the effects of sin will run their course Yet even death won't have victory over this body. Jesus will redeem this body. I will stand before my creator. This body will be fashioned in like as his is. And I will stand with him. For the one who has Christ, like we read earlier, death has no sting. But let me just tell you this. If you are a believer, death also has no ability to send you into depression and discouragement. In fact, it, the Bible tells us in, in Ecclesiastes it is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting because it will cause you to consider your end. If you were to consider your end today, does it cause you joy and gladness? I mean, now listen, I'm not out wanting to die. But I tell you what, I don't control that either. And so I'll just trust the Lord. Well, what would happen? You've got nine kids. What would happen if you know what? My God is trustworthy. I'll tell you what will mess up nine kids. They're dad without Christ. Right? Do you see how understanding that Jesus is the resurrection and the life can actually provide you daily love of life? You should not be miserable. You should not be depressed. Look to Christ. Find in this passage a loving Lord who enters into your sorrow and then promises that if you believe in Him, whosoever liveth and believeth in me shall never die. How will this affect your life? We've stated this before. The disciples. What happened the night they were in the Garden of Gethsemane? And the soldiers came to take Christ. Self-preservation kicked in. And they all scattered. Everyone. And they stayed scattered. The only one who had enough courage was Peter, who from a distance sat there and denied it. Where were the other guys? They were with Jonah. Okay. Right? They were gone. But, but, but let me tell you, Jesus dies he's the resurrection, he is life, they come back and spend time with him, he leaves, sends his spirit to live within them, and what do these guys do? Oh man, read about it. They don't cower in any corner, they stand up to kings. And detractors, they stand up to people possessed with demons, they stand up to people who are stoning them and beating them, and they loudly proclaim what message that Jesus is alive, and it totally, it totally transforms the disciple. Let me just tell you this morning: if Jesus Christ is your resurrection and your life, and you will spend time coming to know him, he will transform your living in such a way that you will stand before others without fear, and you will face loss, and you will face suffering, and you will face persecution with great joy in such a way that as Peter, or as Paul and Silas leave the prison, the guard who was guaranteed death says, what do you guys have? What is that? You were singing last night, you refused to run away today, I need that. See, there's a very practical application to understanding that Jesus is the resurrection and the life, and it should take place in your heart moment by moment. And as you leave this morning, you should leave loving life because it is a gift of God. It is God himself in Jesus Christ living within you, not your daily experiences. Your eternity is secure. So there's another song. We'll end with this. This song is called, It Is Not Death to Die. Oh, I love this song. It is not death to die, to leave this weary road, and join the saints who dwell on high, who found their home with God. It is not death to close the eyes long dimmed by tears, and wake in joy before your throne, delivered from our fears. Oh, Jesus Conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. It is not death to fling aside this earthly dust and rise with strong and noble wing to live among the just. It is not death to hear the key unlock the door that sets us free from mortal years to praise you Evermore, O Jesus, conquering the grave, your precious blood has power to save. Those who trust in you will in your mercy find that it is not death to die. Let's pray. With your heads bowed and your eyes closed, I would just encourage those of you who do not know Christ... Jesus is the resurrection and the life. And that is not just a future event. That is daily. If you do not know Jesus Christ as Savior, don't leave today without coming to know Him. What does that mean? It means that you recognize you are a sinner and you cannot pay for your sin. And your sin will damn you to hell. But God in His love sent Jesus Christ not to condemn the world but that through him the world would be saved. He came to save your soul. Would you believe on what he did for you on the cross? Would you believe that he is the resurrection and the life and will save all those who call on him? You can have this life if you call on the name of the Lord. In faith, he has promised to save all who call on him. Believer, I would not seek to take away what the Holy Spirit is working in your heart. And the beauty of our God is that he applies scripture through his spirit. But let me just encourage you to spend time. We're going into Easter season where we re- where we celebrate the resurrection of Christ, which is called the first fruit. He shows us in his resurrection what it means to have life. Will you not give your mind over the weeks to come to this passage and others that would cause you to enjoy true life?